You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Anna Weinstein, assistant professor of screenwriting at Kennesaw State University. She is editor for Rutledge's Perform book series, a book series which includes essays by scholars and industry experts, as well as in-depth interviews with successful writers, directors, producers, actors, and other film, television, and theater professionals working around the globe. She is currently working on an adaptation of Richard Chase's The Jack Tales for producer Robert Midas who executive produced the recent television series, Ratchet. Director Jay Russell, who directed My Dog Skip and The Water Horse, is attached to the project. In addition to the Jack Tales, she is developing a limited series based on the life of Lillian Smith. Today, we'll speak with her about her residency experiences at the LES Center and her current project, which focuses on Smith. Thank you for joining me today, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you. We've been working together for for a little while now, and you've been a resident at the center, I think, multiple times over the past couple of years. So I'm just curious when we get started, you know, how did you even come to the Lillian E. Smith Center and why do you keep coming back? Well, I love coming back to the center. So I'm thrilled to be working on this project with you and talking to you about this today. I'm trying to remember how I originally found out about the center. I've always you know, I'm always looking for places to write. Uh, And prior to going to the center, I used to go to hotels (laughs) and, and sort of check myself into a hotel for three or four days to buckle down. I honestly, I, I do believe Kai Stevens, who runs the Alabama prison arts education program, I remember hearing and it possibly was through her, I don't remember. But in any case, I found out about I guess maybe What's it been two or three years now? And I've probably come back 10 or 15 times. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. T- typically for weekend stays. And that that's kind of a question. You said you typically went to hotels. I forgot you told that to me before. So what's the difference? And hotels are totally different than the LES Center. What's the difference between hotels and the Lillian Smith Center? And how has the Lillian Smith Center kind of, I guess, helped your creative juices within the writing process? Well, the... I always stay in Wiggy, as you know, and Wiggy has a vibe about it that I just love that. So that's the only cabin that I, or cottage that I stay in there. And it is just a cozy one room cabin with a kitchen and and fireplace and chairs and bed. And you can see the whole space from the bed. I typically, honestly, Matt, I write while I'm in the bed. (laughs) And, um, and I do have to be in a sort of reclining position when I write. I mean, that maybe sounds bizarre, but I do. And so, um, but I, I don't know, there's, there's, it feels like a second home to me now, honestly. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, and how does it help my creative process? I think you have to be really comfortable where you are. So I think when I do go to a hotel, um, it's never as satisfying, right? Like I tend, the biggest difference is I tend to, when I'm in a hotel, I tend to listen to music to drown out or to have my own space. And I never do that when I'm at the center. Isn't that funny? Uh, I don't need to. So I'm just sort of like living and existing in the space. I don't know. It has so much history and it has so much 
warmth and it just really feels like I unlock the door to come in and I just feel like I'm home. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Well, I was going to say, I, I have to write sometimes, not all the time, but in a reclining position too. I was thinking about writing this weekend and being in the recliner and that's how I, how I write. And I used to oh, write I'm in so the bed a lot that. too. Yeah. Yeah. There is something I even actually got a beanbag chair for my office uh, because it's really the only way I can do any kind of creative writing. I can't sit in a straight back chair to write. <laughs> you have to be comfortable. And you said that the Blooming the Smith Center specifically Wiggy kind of gives you that comfort. And you mentioned the history. You know, what is it kind of about that space and kind of about the, the history of that space, not just Wiggy, but the whole kind of center that you kind of feel sparks you or maybe hopefully sparks you? I feel like just knowing that you are in a space where other people have created um, is just very comforting. There's something that makes me feel like I can do it too. And, you know, that is a really different experience than when you're in a Marriott, right? Where you just sort of feel like, who knows what people were doing here before, but, but in the, in the, I don't know, in the cabin, it just feels like there's just been decades of, of people creating and working in the center. And also Wiggy is set up with all of the birds, right? Like there's the bird motif and there is something. So even though it, it just, you feels like you're in the middle of nature, right? You, you step outside and it's just, there's this umbrella of trees. And, um, and it has a different ambiance during the day and at night. That's something I love about it too. During the day, when you step outside the light, you feel like you're in this little piece of heaven. It's just, it feels, it's just very bright and warm. And then at night, it can almost feel scary and um, sort of, you know, misty. And it just takes on a different energy and it works so well because I've written everything from rom-coms to teenage horror to, you know, I'm writing all different kinds of, of things. And, and there's something about the space there. I can like set it up so that it works for what I'm, what I'm writing. And it's the space, actually, we don't own this anymore, but right next to where Calvin and the Smith family actually lived when they moved up there, the Sears and Roebuck house that, that they built, you know, that was their original hotel. You can see it from Wiggy. Yeah. I think that that discussion of the kind of the space makes me think of the, the cabins on top of the mountain too. Wiggy, of course, is down the mountain across the highway, but those cabins on top of the mountain, there's a totally different kind of feeling within the day and then with at night. I'm sure that's in those true. There is something so nice about being secluded too. So you feel, I feel very protected there. It's strange, you know, you, I, I really feel like I can close myself off from the world and yet there's a whole world that came before me in this space. So on the one hand, I feel um, the right kind of isolation that I need to be able to write. And then on the other hand, I feel like I'm part of this historical space where people created brilliant works and, and it's inspiring because it makes me, you know, when I get stuck, I can feel like, well, other people have been stuck in this exact same spot and they came out the other side of it. So... <laughs> Well, you you mentioned that connection with the historical space and you mentioned that, you know, you're in a space where others have created. And I kind of take that to mean, of course, other residents who have been to the center as well. But then also I would say Lillian Smith and Paula Snelling and everybody who has been up there 
and create and connected. And you've written historical pieces. You've talked to me about a historical piece that you're that you're working on a limited series, but then we're also working on the Lillian Smith limited series. And I honestly forgot how we even got started on it, but it started from your residencies up here. And, you know, how did we get started on this process of trying to work on a limited series for her? Because we've had Hal Jacobs documentary, yeah. which is which is powerful, important, and kind of the first really extended theatrical or filmed piece about her. I think, I don't remember exactly, Matt, but my focus, I, you know, I almost always typically um, have a female protagonist in, in the scripts that I write for the most part. And so I have a really strong interest in not just female protagonists, but also women screenwriters, women filmmakers. That's a big part of the research that I do in interviewing um, women filmmakers and screenwriters. And I, there's so few female protagonists. I mean, certainly in the past five years, we're seeing a lot more of it, which is obviously very exciting, but, but that's just a big interest of mine. It's creating a a female protagonist who's, who's really complicated and whose life and work is complicated. And I think as soon as I learned about Lillian, I don't remember how we started talking about it, but you know, I would be, I would be remiss. I would be remiss and my wife would kill me if I didn't say it. I think she planted the idea in my head and we started talking about it. Okay. Well, there you go. So, so, let's so cut, it's my, let's it, it's, it's my, it's my wife's brainchild. And then I kind of Good. ran with it. I don't remember how we kind of started talking about it. The fact of the matter is, you know, she makes such an incredible protagonist and her life is just so big and expansive that there's really no way. Well, that's not true. Of course you could make a film, but I think it, it, this, I think at the time when you and I started talking about it, the idea of a limited series, we were starting to see so many limited series come out. Right. And I, I was working on um, a, a limited series and, and, but you know, you could sort of see the shape of this story over six or eight episodes. Right. We initially talked about doing a film and just, two hours or two and a half hours just doesn't seem like it can encapsulate everything. Right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, she, you know, her, her life, she had so many important segments, sort of moments of her life that we can sort of see, um, how we could shape a a series around it. So I don't remember how we started, but you know, in the end, of course, she's just this incredible protagonist because for me, what makes for a really interesting protagonist to explore is somebody who's just incredibly complicated and their inner life and their outer life is you know, in contrast in some way. And the the goal that they're trying to achieve is obviously so difficult to achieve and, and so many obstacles. And she sort of, she just perfect, perfect, uh, lots of meaty material there. <laughs> well, what, what, what complications kind of appeal to you with her story? Yeah. Um, the complications, I think initially and, and probably, you know, or can we say they're complications or more kind of tensions? Yeah, I think both words work for me because, you know, when I think about a complicated character, that's somebody who has a lot of conflict that is, you know, creating a lot of tension in their life. And I think, you know, when we think as screenwriters, one of the things that we think about a lot is, um, you know, the internal struggle and how you're going to externalize that struggle in a narrative arc. And I think when I think about Lillian and the complications and tensions in her life, it was just very clear to me that she was 
living on the mountain and initially came back um, from China, not by choice, right? She didn't want to. And that's, you know, when you're a young woman and you feel forced to do something and forced to be somewhere um, that you don't necessarily want to be, and then you have to make that place your home, um, that's great conflict, right? That makes for a great story. And now that I'm saying that out loud, it is just really interesting because I've lived in the South for 17 years and have been in this position of being a Midwesterner, you know, and making a place that isn't my home, my home and figuring out how to be at home in a place that, you know, I didn't, I, I, I never knew anything. I, I moved to Alabama from the Midwest. And even um, though, even though it is her home, her coming back, like you said, is that tension partly from China, but also her coming to kind of terms with her own position within that home within as a white home. Southern woman, I think is, is a really important kind of complication with in her that she's dealing with and you pull that out in the in the screenplay the the pilot script that we've that we've gotten done that you've written so let me kind of ask this question there's a lot of more kind of tensions and complications with her too but as we've kind of gone through this you know what's what's one or two of kind of the things that really kind of stood out to you that that attracted you or pulled you in or excited you as you were writing kind of this pilot script that you've done for kind of a limited series pitch like what's one of the important things or exciting things you discovered about her or about anybody in the family or anybody that's in the script? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things, you know, I think the fact that she was in a same sex partnership for 40 years, you know, for the bulk of her life, um, and yet wasn't able to make that public and you know, really had to hide that and not talk about it. Um, that's massive conflict, right? Like that is um, a very, very painful thing. I, I can only imagine to be something, to be someone, to identify in a particular way, but you're not allowed to share that with the world. That's your private life. And, you know, I think I, I keep going back to like sort of greenwriting, you know, how you build stories around interesting characters, you know, characters have secret lives um, that only they know about. They have private lives that only their friends and family and loved ones know about. And then they have public lives, right? And so those three spheres of a, of a person's life, um, you know, usually you have to create a character and figure out how do they present themselves to the world versus to their loved ones versus what they're doing alone. And that was all there for me <laughs> with yeah. Lillian, you know, like that. And, and the conflict was so huge for her. It must, it must be, it must have been so dramatic that this is the love of her life is someone that she has to, to walk around sort of pretending that she's just her secretary, um, essentially is, 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 uh, you can only imagine an extremely painful part of her life. And then I think also, I just thought that it was so interesting that the focus of her work um, in, you know, all of the, the social justice work that she's doing is around race. And, and I think it's a fascinating push and pull in someone when, when they are writing about something that's not their experience. You know, she is in the same sex partnership, but she couldn't possibly be advocating for that at the time that she was living. And, and, but, and yet she felt such a drive to fix the problems that existed in the world. So she put all of her energy and passion into this other problem. And I, I think that makes for a really interesting character, right? Well, here, here's my question. 
was the issue of race. You said that it was that wasn't her own experience. And I would argue that it was her experience, though. And the reason I would argue that and the reason I think that that tension is kind of important, too, is because she's looking at her own experience as a white woman within that context. She's not focusing on the experience of a, of a black man or woman, even though she talks about it. She's focusing on herself and her role within it. Absolutely. I think that's where that is. And I do agree and think that her focusing on that and the other issues that she focused on because she couldn't focus on her own relationship and her with Paula and kind of those discussions. I, I was going to say right, one thing. I think also, I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off, the, the going to China and her yeah. whole experience you know, she comes back from that, you know, her, her role is she's supposed to be the all knowing white woman going to China, right? So when we think about race, I think the experience of of somebody growing up at that time, um, coming of age in the South at that time, race is a black and white issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very different what her what her experience ended up being. And of course, you know, of course, her experience is going to Baltimore and going to the North too. You know, she just had this, this whole world of experience that was very different for most people in the South. Right. I mean, her her teaching in Harlem while she was at Columbia in 27, which I know nothing about. I've just seen in Rose Gladney's kind of chronology. Mm-hmm. that had to have an experience. And she talks about China and the fact that, you know, she saw what the British and specifically the missionaries were doing to the Chinese in their own country. I right. said, this is exactly what we're doing, you know, to African-Americans in the South. But then even going further back, you know, with, with Julie, the girl that the white club women put in her house because they said that she was white and then and took her away from the black family. And then she lived with them for like three weeks. And then they're like, no, she's black and sent her back with the black. I mean, all of these kind of experiences I think kind of, you know, rattled around in her head and even what her father did, right? right. At Christmas. But going back to, to her and Paula, you know, I, one thing that's kind of come to light for me is seeing actually some of Paula's letters and their letters back and forth. And, you know, knowing that their relationship is very different and the way each of them identified was very different. Yes. But seeing the intimacy within their letters too, I think is is very enlightening that the private, you see them expressing these things, but in the public, they're not. Like I've seen videos of them, of course, with Paula walking behind her, you know, there's no kind of that kind of close interaction. But then all the stories I've heard from people who knew them when they were together, the fact they're laughing together, you know, all these types of things and being very intimate. Finishing each other's sentences. Right. You know, talking to people who were young women at the time and would come to visit and um, just how dynamic that relationship was and how powerful the experience was. And that, you, you know, um, everybody says they just seemed like a couple. It was never discussed. It was never mentioned, but they just seemed like any couple. They, they, they seem like any married couple who, who seemed to understand each other. And so that's incredible. I mean, it was also, you know, talk about conflict in reading those letters, the relationship between the two of them in, in terms of also their writing and, you know, that Paula initially was getting so much um, positive feedback from readers from the journal and initially Lillian wasn't. And then that flipped, right? To the point where Lillian um, really took over in terms of with her fame and her everybody thinking about her first and and not Paula. And I think honestly, that's something that is really appealing to me too, as a writer in in terms of just sort of developing that character, because developing the relationship between the two of them, because that's incredible conflict. That's incredible. That's a very painful experience for you 
to be with a partner for 40 years and your voice, your role is just is to lift up your partner's voice and your voice becomes less and less, particularly when she had a very strong voice in the beginning. Yeah, I was looking through, I know I sent this to you the other day, but there was something at the camp I found that was a bibliography of Paula and Lillian's works. And Paula, of course, wrote the introduction to it. This is like 1970, 71. Very kind of intimate introduction, talking about Lillian and the relationship a little bit. But then looking through there and looking at Paula Snelling's kind of bibliography, it's extensive. Yeah. You know, not, not just what all she did for the journal, but she was writing for other outlets as well. Now I need to go back through and dig through it. But, you know, and, and they definitely, each of them had different voices. I mean, Paula is definitely more kind of the scholarly academic voice. And we have a recording of her reading and she's very kind of, you know, along those lines And Lillian is totally different artistic voice than Paula. But there's something you know? about fame, what happens, right? Mm-hmm. When somebody gets that kind of recognition and, and then, you know, that's just very, very interesting to me to explore that dynamic between a couple where one person's career takes off in a way that outshines the others. Which which we see in their letters when she went to New York and Paula stayed home. Right, right. I mean, this these kind of tensions and I wouldn't say butting of heads, but just these kind of tensions of, you know, what's happening in the experiences they're they're both encountering. The the other thing, another thing too, Matt, you know, the the money problems. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so I guess, you know, it's funny, like talking about it now, it's like, on the one hand, these are really big conflicts. And some of them are sort of so high level that you and I personally haven't experienced that. But then on the other hand, it's like, their conflicts are so universal we all understand them on some level. And so I think, you know, even taking something like the money problems, like that sort of really plagued their existence for a really long time, mm-hmm. that that's just a lot of conflict. It, it, it makes them make choices for reasons of, you know, for monetary reasons. And yeah, we can all understand that, like that it's a very universal. So in many ways, the struggles are universal and yet they're elevated, right? They're right. bigger than life, which and is- we- And we talk about Paula, but there are other women within this script that you are adding or not that you're adding, but that you are putting in this script because they need to be in there. So can you talk a little bit about the other characters that you have within this, within this pilot script that you've done for the limited series and their, and their importance and kind of what you've, you know, learned from them, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and that's a really good point too, because her sister, so we're including in the series, uh, two sisters, Esther and Annie Laurie. And Esther is a theater professor um, in Baltimore. And Annie Laurie is a teacher in Memphis. And so these are going to be two very important characters in the whole series. And we're very important people in Lillian's life. And so in addition to Paula, we have those two sisters and who, who also just create conflict for her in different ways. Both of these women were incredibly smart, incredibly successful, fascinating women, fascinatingly um, spent the bulk of their adult lives single, um, which is very interesting, um, especially given the time period that we're in. And that is a sort of in and of itself, a a high conflict situation. And and also just a very, very interesting situation. You know, um, Esther lived by herself, lived in the dorm in at the university, lived in the same room the entire time um, that she was teaching there all those years. And 
Annie Laurie lived with a family, another family. After her husband died. After her husband died. And so, um, you know, they both just had such interesting living arrangements and not typical. None of these women were typical. I guess that that's it, right? None, the four women that, that, that are at the center of the story are not your average women. Well, what about, what about the, the brother? And so Frank um, is, is great. And he is, so Frank is going to be a very um, interesting part of the series. You know, we just are introducing him in a small way here. Um, in the pilot episode. So Frank living, Frank makes really good sense for us to include in the series because he lives in Clayton. And um, so he will be a figure that that comes in and out of her life a lot. And he he's going to create a lot of conflict for her because on the one hand, even though he's very progressive, he's not as progressive as Lillian and Paula. And so that is a good conflict um, for the story. And then Ann and Calvin, obviously, and Moselle, Marley. So, so Ann and Calvin were were setting up the pilot episode. Are we supposed to tell everybody what really happens, or are we supposed to leave it? <laughs> I would say we leave it for that yeah. one. So, so Ann, so Ann and Calvin, of course, are are Lillian's parents, and they're the ones who call her back to help with the camp, and they play an important role within Lil's life for for various reasons. You know, being her parents, and then she has tensions with her parents too, which kind of plays out in the pilot episode too. And then the other two individuals that that Anna mentioned, Moselle and Harley, are African-American characters who, and all of these are real people from um, the Clayton community who worked at the camp. Moselle was a cook at the camp and actually trying to remember which one, I believe Anna Laurie cooked when she came back to the camp too. So when she, so during the camp season, Anna Laurie and Moselle would cook. Moselle cooked the the funeral food I've read um, when Lil passed away and Harley was, was in the community and he was the driver and kind of maintenance person at the camp too. And there's more research I need to do into them. There's, there's two articles in Foxfire that were written about them kind of in the 70s or 80s I need to go look at. But all of these these characters are important and with the tensions and with everything else. But one thing I think that Anna, that you really pointed out was the importance of Esther, Anna, Laurie, and Frank. And one thing that's really struck me, the more I learn about everybody and there's less about them. I would say there's more, there's less about them that I've seen because it's different places. And I just haven't had a chance to research. So Frank is, is very important because of his connections with Clayton, his role in the government. Um, Right. His role within mental health reform within the state yeah. is, is very important. Anna Lori is important because of her work at, in Memphis at the Teachers Institute, training teachers. She was a sixth grade English teacher as well. She was involved with getting Head Start into Memphis. She went to Washington and all of that when Which Head Start incredible. kind of started in the late 60s, early 70s, right? Absolutely. And then and then even Esther and um at Western Maryland. You know, if you look at Western Maryland, she's all over the history of Western Maryland within the theater department. She was so beloved. Exactly. So so kind of the point is that that I've kind of come to is that Lillian, and this is that tension you mentioned earlier, Lillian is out front publicly with all of this. Right. Yeah, there, there are these individuals that are behind her that are doing their own things that are just as important as what she's doing that are making these impacts in their own community. So it's I, I kind of see this story not just as Lillian's story, but as an ensemble story, even though she's the center of it. I think that's that's exactly right. It is an ensemble story. And one of the things that's so interesting to me too is what that does dynamic the relationship looks like when the sisters come back together because these women are very powerful women doing working at it operating at a very high level 
on their own in their own communities. And then when they come back to the camp, Lillian's in charge. And they do take this backseat when Lillian's there. And that's a really fascinating dynamic to explore. And so what we're doing in the series is going back and forth between, you know, so showing the, the women also in Memphis and in Baltimore. Um, because I think that it, it's important to see the parallels. It's important to see what they're like on their own turf and then what they're like when they're at the camp with Lillian. You know, I, I find that a really fascinating. And I also find it fascinating with, you know, you mentioning um, Moselle and Harley. That's a big part of the story. And it's a very big part of the story, you know, that the only African-American people who are there on a regular basis and they're working there in this sort of cook position and driver position, which makes very good sense for the time that this was happening. And at the same time, there's a lot of conflict, internal conflict for sure within Lillian, there has to have been. And that is a, a, a fun dynamic to explore in the story as well. So let's end on this with this question. You've done a lot of research when writing this pilot script and kind of compiling all of this. I've sent you stuff. You've looked at stuff. You've spoken with numerous people who knew Lillian and who knew Paula. I mean, you've yeah. spoken with Nancy Victor Smith, who was Lillian's niece, with John Templeton, who is the son of the family that Anna Laurie lived with in Memphis. You've yeah. spoken with Sue Ellen Lovejoy, who, of course, is, is Lillian's, I would say, I think, great niece. Yeah. Um, you've spoken with plenty of people. Rose Gladney, who's done so much work on Lillian. You know, what's the one thing that really excited you is not the word, but what, what's the one thing that kind of sticks with you and everybody you've talked to? Like, what's one nugget that we can kind of end on that you would want people to know about any of these individuals you were talking about? Well, I think one of the things that has with me the most in the past year since we've been developing this is just the huge impact that Lillian had on these mostly women's life that I've been talking to John aside but for him too right you know that she the experience of meeting with Lillian even if it was just for a weekend or if even if it was just for an evening every six months for all these different people that I talked to, it was life-changing. It was a life-changing experience. And, um, you know, Sue Ellen's story has, has stuck with me a lot that meeting her as a teenager and coming for the weekend and having this absolutely life-changing experience. And it changed her entire life moving from Memphis to, to the Northeast and just sort of changing the focus of her life. So I think, um, I think that is one of the things that is so much fun to develop this character um on the page right off of her because she knowing how powerful she was um and what a what a force she was and what an effect she had and i think you know you can sort of extrapolate from that and see what the experience was like for all of these campers every single summer and what a difference she made in their lives and i think kind of that leads me back to something that Lillian Smith said when the camp was closing. You know, I'm trying to find it real quick, too. She basically said, I can't find the exact quote, but she said when the camp when the camp was closing, when she closed it in 48, that she wanted this camp to impact generations, not just the, the campers that she, you know, taught, but the, their children and their children's children. Right. And I think what you're what you say with Sue Ellen, hopefully we'll have Sue Ellen on the on the podcast soon is the fact that she only met Lillian for three days. Right. And the impact that that kind of meeting had with her while others like Nancy and, and John Templeton, you know, knew her and met her and spent time with her. Rose Gladney never met her. You know, Rose had 
conversations with Paula, but she never met Lil, but the impact that Lil and Paula had on her. Right. I think that that's kind of the important thing too. Then she was able to, you know, I think that, that her goal with the camp, you know, the fact that she didn't necessarily want to come back initially and then took on this responsibility of taking over the camp and her goal was to educate right. these young women, these young girls, and to raise them into forward thinking women. And um, th- so it wasn't just a sports camp and a horseback riding, but in, in fact, they were talking about the pressing issues of the day and helping them think critically and articulate their thoughts and engage in discussions about what they thought versus what they're seeing happening in the world and, and what they've always been told. And, you know, that that's, that's a pretty incredible, that's a pretty incredible woman. Who, and I can't tell you how many campers I've talked I've talked to who said and have relayed that impact. Yeah. Right? And we know everybody wasn't impacted. Even family members weren't impacted as Sue Ellen can kind of attest to with her parents. Right. But the impact that she had with, with those campers, the ones that did connect with it, I think is, is monumental. Exactly. Exactly. She what she was it's not just really her. Important. I mean, the, the impact but they point to her, but the impact Paula had. Paula was the assistant camp director. Yeah. You know, Esther taught um, theater. Like I said, Anna Laurie, I think, was the, was a dietitian or nutritionist and worked in the kitchen, if I yeah. remember correctly. And then all the women who, of course, were there, too, as counselors. Well, I think, you know. I think summer camp, even today, we all know how powerful a, a summer camp experience can be, right? And you, we can we can all understand that, especially at this time, if, you know, this was an expensive camp to attend. So these were mm-hmm. girls who were growing up in privilege. And um, this was an opportunity for them to come for the summer and talk about their privileged position and what that meant and what that looked like and what that might look like going forward. And this was a huge opportunity for them um, in an incredible, an incredible way that she spent her life, right? That both of them, all of them yeah. spent their life making this happen for these girls. Yeah. So very inspiring women, all of them. So is there anything you want to end us? You want to plug before we head out? Uh, keep, keep your eyes open for it. Yeah. Coming soon. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for spending time with me today. And, you know, next time you get up here for another residency, whenever that'll be, you know, we'll go get coffee and everything like that. But for sure. Great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.